The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are, of course, in a continuing study of the fourth gospel. And today we're going to pick up the narrative at John chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, and again, I'm beginning to see more and more Bibles out there, so good for you. I'm taking note of who's doing this and who's bringing them. And those of you who've got them online, yes, I see that's eBay as you're showing it to me there. (laughs) But I do encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. Um, One of the things you're going to hear in the sermon today, for those of you who've not yet heard it, um, Bill is preaching on the Lord's temptation in the wilderness and the challenges that we face. And one of the things that you'll notice about how Jesus dealt with temptation was by means of the Scripture. So... It's described as the sword of the Spirit in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But like any sword, it's only as effective as the person who wields it. So in order to um, be a good swordsman, you have to practice. And it's that way with the Word of God as well. So let me encourage you to bring your Bible with you. And as the old colic says, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. And I promise it will be a benefit to you and to your life. Well, here we are in John chapter 6, beginning at verse 16, so let's go ahead and read through these verses together. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's just go ahead and read a little further. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the Sea of Galilee saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. This is the fifth miracle that we have recorded in the Gospel of John, oftentimes referred as the fifth sign. I pointed out to you before that John is very clear he is not recording everything that Jesus did during the course of his earthly ministry. He makes that point very clear toward the end of this gospel. He said, Jesus did many things that are not recorded here. He said, the world could not contain the volumes if I were to record everything that the Lord did during the course of his earthly ministry. He said, but these have been recorded specifically. In other words, he's saying, I, I am being very particular in the things that I am choosing And I'm doing that so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when John records a miracle, it's because 
he wants to teach us a particular lesson from this miracle. He acknowledges the fact that there were other things that Jesus did, and certainly the other Gospels, the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, all record different things. We said that the one miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels is the feeding of the multitude, which we took a look at last week. But John is choosing particular miracles, and so as we look at these miracles, uh, they're intended to be understood as historical events, things that actually happen, but they are recorded specifically so that you and I can glean a lesson from them for our own lives. And that is true when it comes to this fifth miracle, this storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is a test, a test both for Jesus and it is a test for the disciples. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, how is it a test for Jesus? Well, it's a test for Jesus because... We're told that having fed the multitude, and I said last week that this made a big impression upon the people because they were living in the first century, they were living in an agrarian culture. Uh, food was a precious commodity, more so even than it is today. Now, of course, we recognize we need food to sustain us, but food is readily available, at least here in the United States. It's not something we have to go far to find. You can go down to any one of the grocery stores and get anything you could possibly want. That was not the case in the first century world. Oftentimes, whole communities would disappear overnight if a blight came upon the crops or if there was a drought or anything like that. So food was a precious thing. And they discovered that here was this one, and it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that he would, the Messiah, when he came, would feed the people in much the way that Moses had fed the people with manna from heaven. And here was a man who could take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and lo and behold, he could feed 5,000 people. I think it's recorded in all four of the Gospels because this made a profound impact on these people. My goodness, this must be the Messiah. And we know that's what they were thinking because look at verse 15 of this chapter. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. See, that's the key. They were coming by force, to take Jesus. He's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be the king. Now, as I pointed out to you many times before, the Jews of the first century had very particular notions as to what the Messiah was going to be like. They anticipated that he was going to be some sort of political or military Messiah who was going to drive out the Romans and reestablish the glory days of Israel, the Davidic dynasty, all over again. Now, of course, that's not why Jesus had come. And ultimately, that's why they're going to turn on him. There'll be pandemonium in the streets on Palm Sunday, but by Good Friday, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest will become jeers of crucify him, crucify him. And a large part of the problem was that Jesus simply didn't measure up to their expectations of what the Messiah was going to do. But by this point, having performed this extraordinary miracle, they were all convinced, just goes to show you the fickle nature of human beings, how quickly we can turn. But at this point, at least, they were already, that great multitude, 5,000 men, probably in excess of that in terms of people. There probably would have been women and children as well. So thousands are ready to come and forcibly take Jesus and make him a king. What a temptation that would have been. We all like to be the hero. There's nobody out there that doesn't like to be the hero. Doesn't like to hear worldly applause and acclaim. And that's exactly what they were offering Jesus. They were willing to make him the king. It was a great temptation. It was a temptation like under the one that you're going to hear about in the sermon today and in the gospel lesson. 
Now Satan came to him and said, just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now this was a similar temptation. It was a test for Jesus. We mustn't forget that while Jesus was fully God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, he was also fully man. And subject to the same temptations that you and I are subject to. Jewish religious leaders hated and despised Jesus, ridiculed Jesus, did everything in their power to tear Jesus down. But here were the people overruling the religious leaders, willing to make him their king. This was a temptation for Jesus. But look at what he did. We're told that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's a good way to deal with temptation, incidentally. Do not think for one instance that you, in and of yourself, are capable of resisting temptation. Because you're not. You could do it by the power and the grace of God. But the Bible tells us the first line of defense when you're faced with temptation is to flee it. Run away, just like Joseph did in Potiphar's house. He ran away, and we are called to run away. Well, Jesus withdrew by himself. No doubt to be in prayer, to be with the Father. So it's a test for the Lord. It is also a test, of course, for the disciples. They were going to be tested to see how much they had really learned. Now, I pointed out to you in the past, when I talk about test here, Jesus is not trying to trip these men up. My father taught school for many years, and I still have classmates who tell me, my dad's voice would send shivers up their spine. Because... You'd walk into class, and he was prone to give these pop quizzes. And my dad always had the same phrase. He'd say, clear everything off your desk, take out a sheet of paper. And they would just say it was just like their blood ran cold. (laughs) This is not that kind of a test. This is the kind of test in the way that steel is tested in a fire to make sure that it's it's tempered, that that it's capable of being used, that it's worthy. That's what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to test these disciples. And the test was going to come in the form of a storm. It's interesting to note that in Mark's version of this story, we're told that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. So there is a sense in which Jesus put them in the way of the storm. We're going to see that sometimes God will do that in our lives, but it was not, as I said, in an effort to trip them up or to fill them with anxiety, but rather to test them, to make them strong. In the same way that if you don't use the muscles of your body, if you don't test them, what happens to them? Well, they atrophy, they become flabby, they they lose their ability to work. So you've got to work them. This is one of the reasons why people after a surgery, one of the things they want to do is they want to get you up and get you moving and get you exercised because you don't want to lose the ability. Well, there is a sense in which that is the way Jesus was testing these men. Their faith muscle needed to become strong. Their trust in him needed to be increased. And the only way that that was going to happen was through a storm. Incidentally, that's the way oftentimes we grow in faith. You're never going to grow in faith if everything is easy in your life. If everything is going your way, there's no need to trust God whatsoever. 
This is one of the reasons, incidentally, that Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because rich people don't feel their need for God. They need something, they simply go out and get it. The poor, on the other hand, who have nothing, have no other thing to do than to trust in the Lord. So this was a test for Jesus. It was also a test for the disciples. They were making their way across the Sea of Galilee, and they found themselves in the midst of this great storm. Sea of Galilee is an interesting place. Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, you've been there. Those of you who are going in the spring are going to have an opportunity to actually go out on the Sea of Galilee. It's one of my favorite places in all of the Holy Land for the simple reason that it is one of the few places that is largely unchanged over 2,000 years. You're out there on the same sea that Jesus and the disciples were out there on. It's about 13 miles from north to south in length. It's at its widest point about six to seven miles across. It is the largest freshwater lake in that part of the world. Uh, It is fed largely by natural springs, but also from the waters that come down from Mount Hermon to the north. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River, and the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. It's an odd place in that it is a sea, but it is about 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake on earth, 700 feet below sea level. But it is rounded on three sides by high hills. You have the hills of Tiberias off to the west. Um, They are largely brown. Now, Galilee, for the most part, is pretty green and lush. If you're going to the Holy Land thinking it's just going to be like the desert, that is not the case. That is true down to the south, but to the north, Galilee is is a beautiful, green, lush country. The Israelis, in particular, have made it really bloom. But the area to the west, off there, the hills of Tiberias, they are brown. They remind me of that old hymn that we sometimes sing. It's in the 1940, not in the 1982 hymnal, but it's in the 1940 hymnal, which is the one we use, the right hymnal. And... um, (laughs) In that hymnal, one of the things, that there's this great hymn that says, And they cast their nets in Galilee just off the hills of brown, such happy, contented fisher folk until the Lord came down. Well, those are those brown hills off to the west. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee are the Golan Heights, so contested today and so much in the news today. The Golan Heights at one point rise to about 1,200 feet above sea level. So I want you to imagine the Sea of Galilee being about 700 feet below sea level, the Golan Heights at its highest point rising to about 1,200 feet above sea level. And then to the north is Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in that part of the world, certainly the highest point in Israel. It rises to over 9,000 feet above sea level. Oftentimes, even in the spring, it is still snow-capped. I've been to Mount Hermon in the spring and uh, made snowballs. So just imagine that cold, dry air coming down from the Golan Heights and from Mount Hermon, meeting with that warm, moist, subtropical air rising from the water's surface. What are the results? Well, the results are frequently explosive. This is one of the ways we know that the Bible is reliable. The description that we are giving here is a description that is still very much the case in that part of the world today. Storms still erupt frequently and without any kind of anticipation on the Sea of Galilee. It can be a very dangerous place. 
Back in the 1990s, the small town of Tiberias, which is often where we stay when we go to the Holy Land, it's, it's a little tourist town there. Back in the 1990s, one of these storms erupted and it sent waves in excess of 10 feet crashing into the small town of Tiberias, doing extensive damage. So that's the situation. Jesus has told his disciples to get into the boat. He's going up on the mountain to pray. He's sending them across the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum. And as they're making their way across, one of these storms erupts. It's a small craft. Now, they didn't have motors in those days. If you go out on the Sea of Galilee today, you're on a motorboat. So if one of these storms erupt, we can get back into shore rather quickly. That was not the case in Jesus' day, of course. They had sails. But in this kind of a storm, you had to be very careful. You'd have to take the sail down. And the only thing that you could do was row. And if you're caught in the middle of the lake, you've, you've got to row one way or the other. And it was hard going. And we're told that the wind was against them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And they were about three or four miles from land. Now, if they're at that point where the Sea of Galilee is about six to seven miles across, that means they're in the middle of the lake. Doesn't matter which direction they go. It's going to be a long slog. So it is a perilous situation. These are small craft. Uh, if you go to the Holy Land with me, one of the things that you'll be able to see is one of these original fishing boats from the first century. It's one of the things that they have uncovered. There's actually a museum there where you can actually see the hull of a boat that had been found in the mud and remarkably preserved from the first century, a fishing boat. Now, whether it was, not, it was the boat that Jesus and his disciples traveled on, I don't know. But it would have been just like that, and it is a small craft, you'll see. You'll be amazed by it. So this is a dangerous situation for the disciples. What are we supposed to learn from it? Well, we're told, first of all, that while they were in the midst of this, no doubt rowing hard, no doubt terrified, we're told that Jesus came to them. He came near the boat, walking on the water. And he said to them, do not be afraid. And they were glad when they recognized that it was the Lord. They took him into the boat, and look at how the text ends. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. A couple of things that we need to glean. Again, Jesus is, or John is recording this miracle of Jesus so that we can glean some lessons from it. I think one of the lessons that we learn, first of all, is, as I said, that sometimes God does allow storms to come into our lives. That was clearly the case here. Jesus, as I said, in Mark's version of the story, made the disciples get into the boat. Now, that does not mean that God is the author of evil. We should never think that. But what it does mean is that God will sometimes use the disasters, the difficulties, the tragedies, uh, the struggles in our life for our greater good. That's the great hope that we have as Christian people. That's the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that in all things, all things, God works for the what? The good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what is good about this? Well, the good that God is interested in is not good from a human perspective. The ultimate good... The good that God is always working toward in your life and mine is to make us more into the likeness of his son. 
You may think that the greatest good is to go through life without any troubles whatsoever. To be able to emblazon over your years at the end of your life, they lived happily ever after. But that's not the great good that God is interested in. God knows that the greatest good that any of us can ever experience is to be made like Christ. We were made in the image of God. That image was marred. God wants to restore that image in us. That's the great good that God is always working toward. So, it was evening. Look at the reaction of the disciples on this particular occasion. We're told that they were frightened. In one sense, that's not surprising. I've just described for you a very perilous situation. But in another sense, it is surprising, isn't it? It's surprising at least for two reasons. First of all, they had been with Jesus on another occasion when there had been trouble at sea. It's not recorded in John. As I said, John is selective, but it is recorded in the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll recall that one time they were going across the Sea of Galilee and a storm erupted, very much like this storm, and Jesus, having been ministering to the people, was exhausted. He was asleep on a cushion in the stern. You remember the story? And the disciples were finding that the boat was about to be swamped. They're bailing furiously. They come back. They wake Jesus, and they say to him, and I imagine it was Peter who said it, because this is the sort of thing Peter would say. He said, don't you care that we're going to die? You're back here sleeping in the back of the boat. The rest of us are up here bailing. Do something. Don't just lie there. And we're told that Jesus went to the front of the boat, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. You know, Think about that for a minute, rebuked it. I think many people, when they imagine Jesus up there, you see these paint, peace, (laughs) be still. It said Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. You know what I imagine? I imagine as somebody who is really exhausted, they're taking a nap, and they get woken from the nap. Have you ever been wakened from a nap? And, And what is your general reaction to that? I can tell you what happens when I wake my wife from a nap. A storm erupts in my life. (laughs) Jesus went to the front of the boat and he said, stop it. Man, can a fella get any sleep around here? Peace, be still. And we're told immediately the wind and the waves were calmed and the disciples were in awe. They didn't know what to say. That that was such a shocking experience for them that we're told that they said to each other, not to him, who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? So they had been with Jesus on another occasion when they had been peril on the sea. Now, you might say to yourself, well, yeah, but at least he was in the boat with them on that occasion. He was not with them on this occasion. Well, that's probably true. But I want to suggest to you that the proof of his provision was. Now, this is sanctified speculation. This is the Miller Amplified version of the story. But I've always thought it curious that Jesus had just fed the 5,000 with two fish, five loaves of bread. Everybody's in awe of that. And we're told that once they had fed the crowd, 
they collected leftovers, didn't they? Twelve baskets full of the leftovers. Well, what do you reckon they did with the leftovers? Well, you say, well, they probably distributed among the crowd. Apparently not. Because we're told that the next day, the people came searching for Jesus because they were hungry again. If they had leftovers, I mean, how many of you eat leftovers? Most of us eat leftovers. I'm not a particular fan of leftovers, but we eat them. And in that kind of a culture, of course they would have eaten the leftovers. They would have been happy for anything, but we're told that they were hungry. Apparently, the disciples had collected the baskets of the leftovers, and I imagine took them with them in the boat. Which meant that even though Jesus was not with them, beneath their very nose was the sign that he was the one who was capable of doing all things well. What happened to the disciples? Well, what happened to the disciples is exactly what happens to all of us in the midst of the storms. We forget, don't we? You ever been in a crisis and you've panicked? How many of you have ever panicked in the midst of a crisis? Often that is the human tendency, isn't it? To panic, to forget, even if you've been well-trained, to forget the things that you've been trained to do. It just, it just sort of goes out of your mind. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples on this occasion. They absolutely panicked. But they needn't have panicked. Here are a couple of lessons, as I said, to learn from this story. The first is this. Folks, you are going to face storms in life. Nobody comes through this mortal existence unscathed. I think this is one of the remarkable things about Christianity is that it is a religion for realists. I I like to say that every single one of you myself included. Every single one of us is in one of three places. You decide which one you're in, but every single one of us is in one of three places because we're mortal. First, you're either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you're headed into a storm. Now, nobody likes to think about that, but I'm telling you, this is the honest truth. Every single one of us is either in a storm, we've just come out of a storm, or we're heading into a storm. But nobody escapes the storms of life. Jesus made this point very clear to his disciples. He said, if any one of you would seek to follow me, you must take up your cross. In the first century, that was an invitation to die. As he was preparing to leave them, he said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, if the world has hated me, and of course it had, he said, the world's going to hate you. As the world has treated me, the world is going to treat you if you're one of my disciples. Jesus said, you're going to be dragged before kings and governors and and rulers for my name's sake. And you're going to be publicly flogged and beaten. And they'll do worse to you. Every single one of us faces storms. And of course, ultimately, there is that last great storm that we all must face... And that is death. 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, this is pretty depressing on Sunday morning. I came to be encouraged not to hear about this. But I want you to understand that the only hope we have is by recognizing this and knowing where to turn in time of crisis. That's the first lesson we're going to learn from all of this is that every single one of us faces storms in life. I don't know what the storm is for you right now. You may know what it is. And as in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, oftentimes the storms erupt when you least expect them. The telephone rings in the middle of the night and a storm breaks. So the first thing this thing is meant to teach us, this lesson, is that there are storms of life. Second thing, however, we're meant to understand is that even in the midst of storms, even when in the crisis we panic, Christ is always with us. And that is particularly true following the resurrection and his ascension, because he is with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are never, ever in the midst of life's storms, no matter what you may feel, you are never alone if you're a Christian. If you're one of the Lord's disciples, he was clear, I will be with you always, even to the end of the earth. Here's the third lesson. Jesus is always watching. You know, it's interesting. He went up on the mountain to pray. The disciples are out in the middle of the lake, caught in this terrible storm. They think they're alone. They have forgotten his provision. They're panicked. They're out there rowing furiously. Why are they rowing furiously? Because they think it's up to them. And we've all heard that, haven't we? When, when the going gets tough, what happens? The tough get going. Start rowing. Start bailing. Make your best effort at it. But we're told that Jesus was not oblivious to their pain, to their suffering, to their fear. He was always watching. And not only watching, but he was coming for them. You know, we have that wonderful colic at the beginning of the service. Colic for purity, it goes like this. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. Now, you can look at that as a frightening prayer or as a comforting prayer. It's a frightening prayer if you know that God is always watching and you know you're doing things you shouldn't do, like Adam. On the other hand, that can be a tremendous comfort in times of crisis to know that God is always watching. He notes even the fall of the sparrow from the sky. He is always watching. The disciples need not despair. Here's another lesson. Jesus Christ can and will help. Oftentimes, it's when we come to the end of ourselves and we feel that we have no strength forward, that is when Christ always comes to our aid. He not only comes to our aid, but you'll notice that he brings the disciples safely home. It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately, now think about that, immediately we're told the boat was at the land to which they were going. You know, if you're a Christian, you're on a journey. 
And that journey is toward your home. As the old hymn says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. You're on a journey, you're on a pilgrimage. And as you make your way toward your home, as in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, as you're making your way, there are going to be storms. Some of those storms are going to be violent. Some of the storms are going to be small squalls. But they're going to come, and there are going to be times when you panic, when you are fearful. But what John wants us to understand is that there is one who is always watching. There is one who is always with you. And there is one who, when you think, I cannot go anymore, will come to your rescue. And he is the one who will ultimately lead you home. He will bring you safely to your destination. And that should be an incredible comfort to us. Now, there is one proviso here, and I think it's important that we understand that. Jesus was watching over his disciples. The promise that God will bring you safely home, safely to port, safely to your destination, is a promise that belongs only to his disciples. Jesus was watching over these men. Presumably there were other people out there on the Sea of Galilee. We're told that there were a number of boats that were there the next morning. Where do you think those boats came from? I think they were probably out there on the sea and the wind drove them in. But Jesus went to the rescue of these men. Didn't mean that he didn't care about the others. It just meant that he went to the rescue of those who belonged to him, to his disciples. So I want you to ask this question of yourself. If we all face storms, and the greatest storm that we're going to face is death, nobody avoids it. And Jesus watches over his disciples, and Jesus rescues his disciples, and Jesus brings his disciples safely to their destination. The question we all ought to be asking ourselves is, am I a disciple? When the storm breaks, when the lightning's flashing, when the sea is billowing, is Jesus watching over me as his disciple? That's the question. Some of you may be sitting out there wondering to yourself, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a disciple, really. Well, let me tell you how you can be absolutely certain before you leave here today. How do you become a disciple of Jesus? Really, three things are required. First thing is this. You have to believe, as the colic for the third Sunday and Lent says, that you have no power in and of yourselves to help yourselves. These two miracles go hand in glove. It's no mistake that this storm on the Sea of Galilee follows right after the feeding of the multitude. You've got to recognize, first and foremost, you have no power to satisfy yourself, just as the people had no means of satisfying themselves. You'll recall that Jesus said to Philip, when Philip came and said, send these people away, this is a lonely place, they're getting hungry, they need to go find food, and Jesus turned to Philip and he said, you give them something to eat. And Philip said, what? All we've got is this little boy with his fish and his loaves. There's, there's, there's nothing that we can do. And Jesus said what? 
it's enough. I pointed out last week that no matter how meager our resources may be, our spiritual resources, whatever they may be, place it in the hands of God and it is always enough. So you've got to recognize, if you're going to be one of the Lord's disciples, that you have no way of feeding yourself, spiritually or otherwise. Also, you've got to be willing to admit that not only can you not satisfy yourself, you cannot help yourself in the midst of life's storms. Oh, you may be able to muscle through a crisis here or there, but sooner or later, when you're facing death, there's no muscling through that. So the first thing is this, and this is a hard thing for Americans to do, is to admit that you are absolutely powerless when it comes ultimately to finding peace in your life. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Believe that Jesus Christ alone can give you what you need. That he alone can satisfy the deep hunger and thirst of your soul. And that he alone is capable of bringing you safely to shore. And here's the third thing you have to do. You have to believe those two things. Here's the third thing you have to do. You have to commit yourself to him. Place your life in his hands. You know the old hymn, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. You've got to give. You can't hold anything back. You, you can't treat God like he's an aspirin. You know, that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, nobody thinks about the aspirin in the medicine cabinet until what? Until you've got a headache. Then everybody goes and you take the aspirin and you take the aspirin or the Tylenol or whatever it is and then the headache goes away. And when do you think about the aspirin or the Tylenol again? The next time there's a crisis, the next time your head is hurting, the next time you've got an ache. God is not an aspirin. What God wants is to have a relationship with you. He wants to be in fellowship with you, communion with you. He wants your ultimate good, and that is to be made into his image. And that is something that requires a relationship. So you've got to give yourself over to him, wholly, completely. Take up your cross daily and follow him. And the promise is that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will bring you safely home. One of my favorite hymns is, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. I love that hymn. The words are so deep, so meaningful. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. That's that first miracle, isn't it? Feed me till I want no more. I'm a pilgrim in this barren land. I'm hungry. I'm starving. Feed me till I want no more. Second stanza goes like this. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. You know what Jordan means, the other side of Jordan? It's an expression that means the other side of death. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side, the promised land. Songs of praises, songs of praises I will ever give to thee.
If you're a disciple of the Lord, you never need to fear when the storms come, as they inevitably will. Not to be a downer, but to be a realist. But if you're one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, his promise is that he's watching. He sees your trouble. He's not oblivious to your affliction or to your fears or to your anxieties. He says, I will be with you. I will come to you in the time of crisis. Trust in me, and I will bring you safely home. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this fourth gospel of John and for the promises that it holds out for us as the Lord's disciples. Lord, we're all in one of three places. Some of us right now are in the midst of a storm, battling something, whether it may be depression or difficulty at work or a troubled marriage or a health crisis, cancer or something where some of us are in the midst of that storm right now. Some of us have just come through one of those. And some of us, perhaps we don't realize it because we see through a glass darkly. We, we don't know what storm is about to break upon our lives. You know that we're weak. You know that our tendency is to panic in a time of crisis and forget your continued provision for us in the past. Be tender and merciful toward us, Lord. Come to our rescue. Grant us the grace to recognize that we have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. Grant us the grace to hand our lives over to you, knowing that you will bring us safely to port. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.